Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. And yes, this one might suck just because we're old and uh, we're both tired and we haven't recorded in a while. And we kind of forgot how to do this. But yeah, as I usual, wrote the notes on this one, so it's probably going to be horrible. Yeah. But uh, as usual, you got Mike and Sean on this episode today. And today we're going to be discussing hypothermia. This one, we're definitely going to go into a lot more detail than we did with hyperthermia. This is most practical for our folks right now up here in the Northern Hemisphere as we've just entered our winter months. And with that, Michael, what do we got? All right, brother. Well, I wanted to drop right into this with a little bit of a review. For anybody that's interested, I, I figure we might start doing this on a more regular basis just to provide clarity and such. I didn't pull out of this out of my, out of my brain annals. Uh, I actually did some research here. Primarily, this episode comes from research from the WMS Practical Guides and a, I would call it a spectacular book called Mountain Emergency Medicine. We'll drop links in the show notes when we put this stuff out to those episodes or to those materials. But combined with those, this is also based on some pretty practical experience Sean and I have. We've treated quite a bit of hypothermia in the cold months here in the Mid-Atlantic. So nothing like we've been hanging out in Antarctica, but we do see quite a bit of this. So let's start with a little uh, EMT school review, shall we? Hypothermia is fundamentally the result of heat loss from the body. It's not the act of losing heat that's important. It's important to understand that this occurs because there is more loss of heat than the body is able to manufacture or produce in any given period of time. And there's really fundamentally three ways we lose heat. I'm going to talk about a fourth one here in a second, but there's three fundamental ways. And if anybody listening to this podcast ever went to EMT school, which I'm assuming is at least one of you, you're going to remember that conduction is defined as a direct transfer of heat from a warmer object to a cool object, but they have to be in direct contact. So for example, this is sitting on a cold rock, right? Ideally, if you're going to be out in the woods hiking, you're going to be wearing pants. But in theory, right, if you're buck naked sitting on a cold rock, that cold rock is going to draw more heat from your body than your body is able to draw from the rock, resulting in conduction. Convection, by definition, is actually a heat transfer to or from a gas. So the textbook definition actually calls it the rate of heat transfer that can be directly correlated to the velocity of an object. So in other words, wind blowing across an object or water running over an object. This is where we get the concept of get out of the wind, get out of the wet. This is where, well, wet clothes, you actually get convection and conduction. But go with me here. Don't lay naked in a cold <laughs> river stream. It's going to pull more heat out of your body than you can retain. I don't think care if you're wearing your finest of woolen long underwear. If you lay in that stream, it's going to get cold. It's going to get cold, right? Even if you're in a dry suit, you will eventually get cold. You will time. eventually get cold. So convection, I just think of these in the simple forms like conduction is like touching a thing. And convection is because the world exists and wind blows and water is wet. <laughs> <laughs> Radiation, I love this definition too. Radiation is defined as a transfer of electromagnetic energy between two objects near each other, but not in contact. Basically, we talk about radiation more in a thermal thing when we're talking about heat. You want to radiate heat out of your body into the environment. So if your body is hotter than the ambient environment, your body is always kind of radiating heat. 
And actually what we're doing in, uh, in cold environments is typically trying to trap heat that is radiated through our metabolic process with the things like big bulky clothing that keep that energy closer to our body to keep us warm. Technically in the textbook, you're also going to read that we technically lose a certain amount of heat through respiration. This is not even an appreciable impact overall to heat loss. Your skin is your biggest organ and all that good stuff. But it is worth <laughs> mentioning that you do lose a certain amount of heat through the process of breathing. But as I put in the notes, breathing is pretty darn important. So let's not try to lose heat by stopping the breathing. Like, <laughs> you've got to keep breathing. Let's keep that process going. Uh, and it's also worth note, I, I found this actually kind of interesting in the research. They explicitly called out that humans are, are largely the only mammal on the planet that is completely incapable of thermoregulation without some sort of external input. I mean, I kind of knew that, but it, when you read it in text, you're like, oh, yeah, huh, what do you know? That's interesting. We're like really bad at retaining heat as a species. And so that's why we have blankets and jackets and all of the things that we've innovated over time because we're pretty bad at it. So there isn't a whole lot humans can do naturally to maintain heat. It's all about the externalities. And that's why treatment of hypothermia really boils down to, as we'll get into, the managing of heat loss and the things around the body as opposed to like, hey, that dude needs to grow more fur. It's, it's not a thing we do. Yeah. So there we go. I went kind of deep on that one. But I, you know. yeah, well, if most of our listeners consider that deep, then I'm a little bit concerned about most of our folks practicing wilderness. Right. So that leads us into classifying hypothermia, just like hyperthermia, you know, you go heat cramps, heat exhaustion, heat stroke. We, you know, we have a similar system classifying the degrees an individual is in hypothermia. Two main systems. Today, we're going to discuss the most standard, something called the Swiss system, but it's not widely used. It's more complex. There are just like anything in medicine, they can start calculating and measuring a lot of different variables, like the velocity of a swallow flying from Spain with or without a coconut. So right now, we're just going to talk about your most common measurements, right? And they're going to be just like you would expect, mild, moderate, and severe. So mild hypothermia is defined as a core temperature between 95 and 89 degrees. Now you think 89 degrees, that's pretty cold. It is. However, it's still when your body gets down to 89 degrees, you're still able to function reasonably well. And for those tracking it on Celsius, that's 35 to 32. Moderate hypothermia is taking a step up 89 down to 82.5 or 32 to 28 C. And severe, anything below 82 degrees Fahrenheit or 28 C. And if you think about that, once your internal body core temperature drops below 82, that is really pretty significantly cold for a human body. You would still think it's warm. I mean, if we think about an 82-degree day, it's a beautiful warm day. But your, your body is not designed to function at 82, especially below 82. Uh, hypothermia, pre-hospital setting, generally it's estimated using the patient's presentation. Unless you have a good rectal thermometer, which I've got, unfortunately, or fortunately, I suppose, have a lot of experience with rectal thermometers and getting good core temperatures. You probably have some experience with sounding rods too. And that is a call out to my buddies at the job. I'll explain that one in some future podcast, but that's been a running joke for weeks. So <laughs> Yeah, let's, let's not do that one. So yeah, for most of us pre-hospitally, especially even in well-stocked progressive ambulance systems, there's not a lot of rectal temperature gathering going on. It's usually my patient's really cold, they're shivering, they're altered mentally or not, and I just need to load them up, start warming them and get them to the hospital as quickly as possible. Realistically, even in a wilderness setting, 
knowing an exact core temperature, it's like, well, he's 82.6. He's no longer severe. Let's, uh, let's not get too extreme with that, right? But erectile temp is the most common. Obviously, there are some in the hospital or some other advanced critical care places where you can do esophageal temps and things like that to get a much better core temperature reading. But for the most part, pre-hospitally, rectal's the best. Most of us are stuck using an old school traditional oral thermometers or the less accurate, depending on the model, the temporal temperatures, you know, scan the forehead deal. Those are giving you a good estimate. But remember, if somebody's been out in the cold and their forehead has been exposed and all those capillaries are constricted, you're going to get an altered reading. So those aren't necessarily the best choice right there either. So presentation is going to be your best one, right? And this is where you got to put your EMS hat on and actually assess your patients. So patients can be shivering, but that does not mean they're hypothermic. That means they're just generating heat. And if they're staying ahead of that curve, like Mike mentioned, loss versus gain, then they're good. Mild hypothermia usually does present with shivering because now you're at a point where you're having to create that extra body heat. You're having to use your body's energy stores to make energy, making heat, keep yourselves at a certain level. Once you stop shivering, right? So metabolically, if you think about that, you've essentially used up all of your fuel and you can no longer self-generate heat. You're going to start to cool off and it's going to start to exponentially increase as the time goes all along. Stop shivering, it becomes an emergency. Right, Because at this point, your patient no longer has the ability to make heat on their own, and then it becomes your job. So at approximately 30 degrees Celsius or 86 Fahrenheit, most patients end up going unresponsive. So this is a big one, right? So if we look at that, that puts you back in the middle of the moderate field. So once your patients get altered, you know you've crested into, we'll call it the danger zone, and you need to start doing some work and you need to start doing it faster. Just like when you've got patients that are way too hot, if you're not sure if it's heat exhaustion or heat stroke and they're altered, well, we got to go with the uh, heat stroke and start working it. Just like the same thing, if your patient's cold, they're not shivering and they've got an, and we're not saying just a little bit altered because even mild to moderate patients can have a little bit of an altered status, a little manual dexterity starts to go. But when they have a significantly altered mental status, your little spidey senses need to queue up and you need to start going to work. Yeah. So here comes the, the deep, deep thoughts by Michael. Let's talk a little bit about the, path, the pathological and physiological effects of severe hypothermia as compared to mild and moderate hypothermia. In my mind, in a wilderness setting, in an austere setting, or even pretty much in like a street EMS setting, I kind of think of like mild and moderate hypothermia largely the same way, right? My unit of measure, because of the tooling I have available to me, though it, at a system I operate in, we actually have rectal thermometers, but you don't want to roll up on somebody to be like, hey, you're shivering a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, put this in your keister, right? That's for the severe patient. And honestly, we use those more so for hyperthermia, right? Measuring whether we need to get them into uh, a water bath right away versus transport them. So I don't get too, too hung up on mild versus moderate hypothermia. The, the key thing is to recognize that if they've been shivering and they quit shivering, or they are shivering, but they're not quite coherent, that isn't the time to be like, huh, I wonder if somebody's cold. That's the worst. Well, I wonder if we should get them a blanket. It's where we jump into action, right? This is where we start treating the hypothermia. Even mild cases, you can have patients that present with a slightly altered LOC, I guess I'll call it. Measuring altered LOC is kind of a, it's as much an art as it is a skill and everybody's got a slightly different unit of measure depending on who you talk to. But uh, you can have patients present with anxiety or irritability 
impaired judgment. This is where the, it's almost a wives tale. Like we actually know what happens, but we don't know why the whole paradoxical undressing thing. That's kind of a late stage thing, but you get impaired judgment, apathy, ataxia. Like you just get like, they don't really care that they're cold anymore. That's not time to sort of, you know, Hey, I wonder if we should give him a cup of Joe and see if he can walk around a little bit. You need to start the active warming process at that point, even though they may still be presenting as mildly hypothermic, shivering, cold hands, things like that. They're altered man, get on it. And the big risk here, especially in a wilderness environment where ideally we want to walk people out of the woods, it's more efficient than picking them up and carrying them. But if they're presenting with any sort of alteration, this is where they're at a risk of falling in and injury. There is actually some pretty decent data on the fact that if you're if you're to the point where you're not making good decisions, walking around the woods is generally detrimental to your health. Like there's cliffs, there's rocks, there's snakes, there's bugs, there's trees, there's things. So be very careful. I'm not saying don't walk them out. I'm just saying even mildly hypothermic people can have trouble walking. They can stumble. They can fall very easily. So be careful. Now this is where we're going to go deep. Severe hypothermia has a ton of complications. And this is a true medical emergency. The numbers are actually not that great on the number of people that end up severely hypothermic for more than about a couple hours and having a decent outcome with no neurological deficit or, or no injuries that have occurred from it. So first off, let's talk about the big one that everybody really, really focuses on when we get to severe hypothermia, the heart. So your heart's actually affected by two different things when you get severely hypothermic. First is the obvious. Your flesh, your cells, your muscular tissue does not like being cold. But it's actually, it's interesting, and I'm not going to go super, super deep, but there are some changes in pH that occur inside your body that actually have a detrimental effect to your heart function. And this is where the things that we, we hear about in class, like tachycardia, typically that drops off pretty quick. Altered rhythms, you can get bradycardia, you can get prolonged QT, and J waves will start forming below say 82 degrees Fahrenheit or 28 degrees Celsius. And eventually it's kind of a foregone conclusion. All the material I read said, eventually, if you remain cold for long enough, you're going to go into VFib. This, well, this will come up again in a second, but this is why we don't want to let super cold blood circulate back to the heart rapidly when we're treating this in the field, because making the heart cold and shocking it with cold blood, it's kind of detrimental to your cardiovascular system. It, I also wanted to call this out just because you're not seeing J waves or you're not seeing prolonged QT, just about any, I'll call it a funky rhythm in a cold person should be considered an emergency. Bradycardia in and of itself in a cold person is an emergency. They are not going to get better without intervention. So anything that shows up as what I would call an atypical cardiac presentation, if you're looking at a monitor, should be considered concerning. And quite frankly, the best way to treat this is not a bunch of drugs and fluids and IVs and things. It's if you warm up the outside of the body, the inside of the body can retain more heat. The inside of the body produces more heat and things start working gooder. It's a chemistry problem, right? The interaction of all of the things that make our body work properly is impacted by the cold. So if you help it get less cold, it will help work better. Wow. I just said that in a very unscientific manner. All right. Let's talk about CNS. This is all of the material out there basically says, yeah, people get altered and then eventually they die. And that's, that's kind of what happens to us in general. But it's important to remember, especially let's harken back to our BLS training. They're not dead until they're warm and dead. And that's fundamentally because your body systems slow down when you get cold. 
measuring your actual CNS state of a very, I'll call it severely hypothermic patient is difficult, right? Cognition doesn't work so good. Your heart's not pumping as much oxygen around. All of your cellular functions are not requiring as much energy because they're all slowing down. Everything gets slower. And as such, it's really hard to assess whether or not somebody is truly, truly dead or whether their systems are just operating at such a low rate that they appear to be deceased. So let's remember that they're not dead until they're warm and dead. I don't know if any other EMS program uses that terminology, but the school I went to harped on that, right? Like you got to warm them up before you get to declare that somebody that doesn't have a heart rate is actually dead. And there are studies out there. People have been in lakes for hours and hours, been pulled out and survived, non-neurologically impacted because they, uh, they were just really cold. Yeah, they have the several avalanche rescues that are the same thing. Patients were buried, able to still breathe. They weren't impacted too badly. And yeah, they were covered in snow for hours before rescuers are able to dig them out. And they've had a couple of really good saves. So yeah, it is a pretty fascinating thing that happens to the human body. Well, that leads directly into respiratory drive. So there's actually a fascinating thing. If tell us in the show notes, send, send comments or in the, not in the show notes, tell us in the comments, hit us up on Facebook, send us an email. If you want to go like wicked deep into what happens, this, I find this fascinating. So I'm happy to go research and, and provide more input, but there's actually a couple things that happen to your respiratory and your cardiovascular systems when you get cold. The first obvious thing is your metabolic rate decreases because everything slows down, but you actually lose a pretty good percentage, a pretty good portion of the elasticity of the cellular state. So everything kind of gets hard, so to speak, making it harder to squeeze and fill the lungs, et cetera. They also, interestingly enough, patients lose their, you lose your cough reflex pretty early on in the cold process. And I found this kind of fascinating. So if there is other complicating factors like fluid, mucus, things like that, you can actually lose your cough reflex pretty early and you don't necessarily clear as much funk. And this may confuse some folks, but you become more sensitive to CO2 making alkalosis a concern. And I don't mean that you're not breathing off as much, so you're alkalotic. That's kind of counterintuitive. What I mean is your brain's ability to process whether or not you need to breathe faster or slower is impacted. And you can actually end up alkalotic because you're not managing your respiratory rate appropriately to help maintain that 7.35 to 7.45 pH balance. And it actually has been seen in studies and in the field that people can have a respiratory rate as low as five breaths per minute and maintain homeostasis because they're so cold and their metabolic demand is so low that they're only breathing at five or six breaths a minute and they're good. Like they could stay in that state for a while. Some of the stuff I read actually says that this can be, this was actually a unit of measure, is a unit of measure when you start doing uh, permissive or hypothermia for cardiac patients. They keep an eye on the respiratory rate because it's actually a, a marker as to how the whole body is functioning because you just don't require as much oxygen, you don't blow off as much. But it was fascinating to me that you also become less sensitive to, I mean, if we remember, you know, they always said, don't give too much oxygen to a heavy, heavy smoker in school because your, your respiratory drive is actually driven by your CO2 levels. Your primary respiratory drive is driven by your CO2 levels. You become less sensitive to that. So it's harder for your body to manage that. And then finally, no surprise here, metabolically, your diuresis will increase with cold, which I found fascinating as well. And as such, depending on the balance, and I'm assuming this is more of like a severe case situation, not an average, you know, I'm in the woods treating a guy. You can actually see hyperglycemia because insulin release is actually reduced significantly. And so that combined with slowing down metabolism, you can end up with some metabolic imbalances because there's a lot more sugar flying around, but it's not getting into the cells. The cells are slowing down. They don't care. You can end up with some complications from hyperglycemia. 
And then I think everybody that's spent more than 10 minutes studying or going to school about cold injuries will tell you they've heard about hypokalemia. That's just another aspect of, of being cold, right? It's the shift in the metabolic drive. And then a couple other neat things that I don't think we need to go really, really deeply in. I found it interesting that your hemocrit actually increases approximately 2% for every degree Celsius in decline in body temperature. So basically, your blood gets thicker and harder to pump around. I don't think anybody that's ever treated somebody that's super cold, getting an IV is not always easy because they're shunting, right? But they're not only shunting to maintain perfusion to vital organs. It's just harder and more work to push around the thick blood. And then, also probably not surprising, your ability to coagulate is actually greatly reduced when you get into the moderate hypothermia space. So if there's any other traumatic injuries or anything else coupled with the cold injury, our standard process of like, well, I'm just going to, you know, put a four, four, four by four on there, put some pressure on it, and it's going to clot. You have to kind of watch for that because the blood is thicker, so it's going to be more oozy, less squirty. But also, you may, like your enzyme function and your coagulation function may just be impacted to the point where you can't clot very well. And there was some interesting. I'll call it clinical theorizations that you can actually have people that ooze out, especially with internal injuries, because the body just can't clot. So everything is slowing down, but it turns out they can't clot at all. So they're just kind of leaking into their gut and eventually they run out of juice because they don't have enough of the fluid going round and round. So anyway, that's probably deeper than most people care about, but those are some of the pathophysiological impacts of cold injury. Yes, folks. Mike did go to paramedic school and graduate. Yeah, it's amazing, right? I can't even say words, but I graduated paramedic school. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think that's a pretty good, we'll say, slightly advanced overview of hypothermia and how people get into those bad states. And a big one is like clotting function. If you think about trauma and the lethal trauma triad, what's one of them? Hypothermia, right? Hypothermia. Yep. Because your patients lose, start losing clotting factor. So don't forget about that when you're in a cold weather environment. Those minor cuts might just take longer to stop bleeding or big ones can be significant, right? You got to not forget all the rest of your things just because of your focus on the cold. So we've identified it. We've like, hmm, it's cold out. My patient appears cold. They look pretty bad. What are we going to do about it? Walks like a duck and all that. Yeah. So you got to think about this is as a, essentially as a continuum, right? You're going to start at the, basically the same starting point for everyone and you're going to progress up as the severity of their hypothermia is progressing up. Big one, if your patients, if they're in the cold environment still, number one treatment is to try, if you can, get them out of the cold environment. Now that might just mean take them out of the open exposed wilderness and put them into a tent where some heat is going to start to be retained, or if possible, get them into a warm vehicle, a building, etc. ideally. Now for those of us finding these patients in the wilderness environment, the erection of a, of a shelter that can start retaining some additional heat, that's what you're going to want to do. So after we try to get them out of the environment, we need to get them out of, if they're in wet clothing, we got to get them out of wet clothes. That goes back into the how do we lose body heat piece we talked about earlier, conduction and convection. If you're sitting around and it's 28 degrees out Fahrenheit and I'm in a bunch of wet clothing, I'm just going to keep getting colder and colder and colder until I get that wet clothing off of me. So you got to get them out of the wet clothes. You got to get them dry. You got to put them back into, if you have it available, some dry clothing. If you don't, you need to get them stuffed inside of dry, clean sleeping bags, or at least relatively clean. If you have dirty patient, or we'll call it duty patient sleeping bags. I know where Mike and I work. They do get cleaned, but 
sometimes more often than other times, depending on the patient you had, right? But you try to get them in there, you got to get them dry, and you got to start getting them warm. And this is for both mild and moderate, right? You got to start getting them warm. You got to get them out of the environment, start letting them, if they can still make the body heat, make it and then retain it. That's the big piece, right? If they are alert, conscious, and able to protect their own airways, something else you can start to do is you're going to want to give them some nice warm, and it doesn't necessarily have to be warm. And we're going to have another episode that kind of talks about body's ability to warm with the use of warm fluids. But suffice it to say, handing them an ice cold Coke by say nice warm, hot Coke, essentially what you want to give them is the sugary beverage because they're looking for the calories so that they can burn the calories to make more heat. So a nice cup of full fat hot cocoa with full fat milk. Yeah, let's do that, right? Get those initial simple carbohydrates on board so they can at least start having the fuel necessary to generate body heat. Now, again, that's only if they can maintain their own airways. You don't want to start like pouring hot cocoa down the throat of somebody who's barely conscious. Not the ideal situation. That's what OG so, tubes are for, right? To pump the hot cocoa into their stomach. <laughs> I mean... I, mean, I yeah, believe they call those feeding tubes in the hospital, but that's kind of yeah, beyond so yeah. the pre-hospital environment. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to go down that hole, but sure, there's some other routes of administration that you could use if you really needed to. So for your unconscious patients, you got to assume that they're unconscious because of the hypothermia. And now, it could be something else, but for general purposes, until you can confirm it's something else, you have to assume it's because of the cold. So you need to start treating them a little more gently. As Mike talked about, some of the concerns with cardiac sensitivity, they are real. Uh, if you jostle them too much, you can start throwing some of those mild arrhythmias into very significant arrhythmias, and then you've got a cardiac arrest on your hands, and that's just nothing you want to have to deal with in the woods, in the cold, right? Try to keep them horizontal, right? And this is just to kind of keep, keep cardiac function and its need to provide significant output at a pretty steady state, right? So if if you have them, if you think about it, standing up, the heart's got to be able to beat and move blood against gravity, going, getting it back from the feet back up to the heart. Whereas if you can keep them horizontal, everything flows a little smoother, and that's what your goal is. So keeping them relatively horizontal. If you need to elevate the head slightly, by all means, it's not going to be the end of the story right there. Most of us would probably recommend it. One of the other concerns, especially when they're getting into that severe hypothermia, is the circulating cold blood. And that's coming back up in and around the heart. That's when you start having some of these other cardiac issues and you start seeing the significant arrhythmias. So you've got to be very cautious of that. And that's why we want to, summer rewarming should be done a little bit slower. There's some techniques that go into it. We're not going to get too deep into that just because that can take, that's an episode in and of itself about what should be warmed first, last, et cetera. There are differing opinions in the medical world. And this is talking at the physician level in hospitals and things about how patients who are severely hypothermic should be rewarmed based on when they want to start moving some of that colder blood that's been shunted out in the extremities back in towards the core, etc. So we're not going to get too deep into that. Just know that you need to get them dry, you need to get them insulated, and you need to start warming them back up. If you can administer some warm fluids, by all means, start doing it and start getting them, if they're conscious and able, calories, right? They got to start being able to burn energy to make some more heat for themselves. So in other things, hot packs, again, there is some, there's a belief if you just start dumping hot packs or Nalgene bottles with hot liquids in them, putting them in under the armpits, the groin, the axillaries, et cetera, that you're going to start doing a lot of great miracle work. Yes and no. There is, uh, there's some 
I don't know how new it is really, but there's some emerging science that's coming out that's starting to find its way into pre-hospitally, that there's some other areas of the body that are more efficient when you're trying to heat and cool people this way. But at this point, think about what you're trying to do is provide external active heating measures, right? So these are for the patients that can no longer tolerate passive rewarming. So think about that as, as passive is they don't have to do anything. I get them dry. I insulate them with good materials, sleeping bags, extra jackets, hats, gloves, mittens, whatever it might be. And then their own internal energy production and their ability to make body heat on their own is that passive system. And they're going to start generating more heat and get warmer. If they're at the point where they can no longer shiver and they cannot generate heat on their own, you need to do active measures. And so you have to provide external heat sources to the patient to start warming up their body. One of the great, I don't know if it's, I won't call it a fallacy, but everybody wants to whip out the space blanket and start throwing it on cold people. Space blankets only work for people who are still generating a relatively decent amount of body heat on their own. If there's no body heat to be held in, the space blanket has nothing to reflect back in and keep you warm. So just throwing a space blanket on top of somebody that's in the middle of the woods and severely hypothermic isn't going to start doing anything for them in and of itself. So you got to start adding active warming measures to that, right? And that can start acting as a vapor barrier, depending on the technique you use to package your patients. But you got to think about that one, right? All right. So the old school, uh, if you're not having some of the, there's some excellent over-the-counter hypothermia pre-made patient rewarming kits that are out there that have built-in heat packs on them that have essentially they're really, really high speed space blankets, but they have a bit more insulation. They have built-in heat packs to cover the torso and the core. They can be, you can start opening up these heat cells one at a time, all of them, et cetera. Some really good stuff that's out there to start combating hypothermia. They can be a bit pricey, but in my opinion, they're absolutely worth it if you work in this environment and hypothermia is a problem. In worst case scenario, you can go back to the old school, direct skin to skin contact. That's my favorite. Yeah. So you don't necessarily have to go full nude here, right? But the goal is, is to get a nice, warm, healthy person next to the cold one to start transfer of heat and conduction, my friends, contact, right? That's how we're transferring the heat from one person to the other. So now eventually, depending on how cold the patient is, you're going to have to switch out warm patients or warm body heat providers, because they're going to start to get a little bit cold too. So you got to watch out for that. But you can, you can pack several people. Like <laughs> Mike and I have a lovely story of a long night we spent out on the mountain with a patient. Uh, there were three of us care providers there. And it was, a, we got very, very close. There was one sleeping bag and one sleeping pad for three of us. And so we put the pad underneath us to insulate because of conduction, sleeping bag over the top of us. And we got very, very cozy and very, very friendly with each other, sharing that body heat. But it worked out. We stayed relatively warm most of the night. So that's that's the principle, right? You got to get in there and get some shared heat going. And again, if, if you have some of the pre-made systems that have these heating packs that you put on the torso and start warming them up, by all means, put them to use. Uh, I will give you the caveat. If you're going to put hot things against a patient's skin, don't put very hot things directly against the skin. You don't want to burn them either. Remember, these patients are in a fragile state. So you do want to provide a little bit of a barrier between whatever your hot thing is and the patient's skin. Other things to consider, supplemental oxygen, right? So if the respiratory rate is low, they're not breathing at what we'll call a normal sufficient rate and depth, supplemental oxygen might be necessary. You got to help them keep oxygenating the cells, particularly the brain and the heart. ALS meds. Now, this is a trick for our ALS providers, right? There are times when you may have to give a lower dosage 
because you don't want to cause too much activity, particularly like with cardiac meds. And sometimes because of the lower metabolism, you also have to double some of your meds, right? Because they're just not going to process the way they normally do in a normal thermic patient. So this goes into, you're going to have to know your meds, you're going to have to know their purpose, and you're going to have to understand that in these hypothermic patients, do I need to be giving less or do I need to be giving more, right? Because again, that slower metabolism can have a significant impact. And with the sensitivity of particularly the heart and some of the other organ systems, you've got to be very conscious and aware of what the drugs you're going to be giving them are going to do to them and some potential complications. Is this when we're supposed to say, follow your local protocols, talk to your medical director, don't break the rules because you're listening to our podcast? Don't that break the rules because you're listening to our podcast. <laughs> yes. We are not your medical director. We cannot tell you what to do. And that's why we, if you haven't noticed, we don't generally go into actual doses and things like that. And that's, that's why, folks, you, you got to know what you're doing with your own stuff within your own well. There are people who have far more advanced protocols that Mike and I are allowed to work under. And if we don't want to hamper you or on the converse, yeah, we don't want to be telling people to give more of something when they simply cannot do it. Anyway, back to our patients. Of course, any unconscious hypothermic patient needs to be taken to a facility that can provide some sort of active warming measures, right? Uh, if you've been in the hospital, you've done time in the EDs, the bear hugger is probably the most common thing, which is the big plastic bag blanket that they start blowing hot air into and starts to insulate your patient, keeping them nice and warm. Good choice. If I could get one of those for my backpack, I probably wouldn't carry it because uh, it'd be too heavy. Mike could be all about say, it though. And a guy to carry it for you like me. <laughs> That's right. You know, you need your uh, you need your porters and your mules. But that would be fantastic. So again, for us, get them out of the environment, get them dry, get them in dry in good insulated clothing if possible, and then when feasible, you've got to evacuate them. Even the mildly hypothermic patients need to be evacuated. They've got to get someplace warm. You can't just hang out, evaluate them, get a couple sets of vitals, feed them some cocoa, and say like, "All right, you feeling good? Here's a space blanket," and let them sign. Right have them wave as a refusal and off they go. Those folks still need to come out of the woods. They need to be seen and evaluated just to make sure that that mild hypothermia is truly mild and that they're not continuing to progress down that continuum from mild to moderate, et cetera. Yeah, that's, that's really about it. There's some other discussions to be had about this, but those really go into more of an operational aspect of dressing for your environment, being ready to be in these cold weather environments, not putting on too much, et cetera. But that's really not what we're talking about today. We might make that discussion for a future episode. And if really, you to, if, if you want us to teach you how to dress, let us know. Yeah. I mean, if, if anybody's interested in an episode talking about, and really this would be more for us, the providers, discussing clothing and layering and perhaps some equipment, things you might want to have for these working in these environments. Yeah, let us know. Maybe we'll put one together. But really, we're talking about patient care and what to do when somebody has not done the right thing. Maybe they were out there when they shouldn't have been or they were doing too much and just pushed themselves too far. And I think with that, I think that pretty much covers most of the key topics we want to talk about today. I agree. <laughs> so, so remember, just like with hyperthermia, if you're not certain what stage they're in, always bump them up at least one, right? So if you're not sure if it's between mild or moderate, they're moderate. And if you're not sure if it's mild or moderate or severe, just go with severe, right? Pre-hospitally, like I said, unless you're carrying a good core thermometer where you can truly measure it and give them that black and white definitive line, which even amongst various ratings 
fluctuates significantly, right? Yeah. So yep. don't worry about the temperature, worry about your patient's presentation, and then start treatments. Of course, the international, I will call it just, uh, just about, they're not dead until they're warm and dead. That's pretty much the standard. There are caveats uh, for those of us, especially in the United States, or those that follow the American Heart Association. I don't know if the whole ILCORG piece follows the same ones about conducting cardiac arrests for hypothermic patients. But there are some caveats to that with when you give certain medications, the amounts you give, delivering shocks or shock well rhythms that change slightly for hypothermic patients. If this is something you deal with, then I suggest you at this time of year, especially for us in the Northern Hemisphere, review those things, right? Know when you should and shouldn't be doing, especially giving shocks. And that's about it, right? What else, Mike? I guess I do want to mention two, I guess I'll call it foundational things, right? Being dry is gooder than being wet. If you have to stay wet, you have to manage the being wet by putting additional layers over and providing thermal barriers. Ideally, though, if a patient is cold and wet, they are going to be better served by becoming cold and dry. Or, yes. Yeah. Well, and actually, I, I find this fascinating. There were a couple of references to this, but you can do all you want for sedentary people trying to warm them. But if you can get them up and moving, if they're still conscious and capable of like moving their body, that is the gold standard in producing heat, right? Yeah, so body heat, make them, make them burn heat. that energy. Build that let's body do heat. some jumping jacks. Let's, uh, let's just walk in circles for 10 minutes and see. That may be the difference between mild and moderate is, hey, you've been sitting here cold for a while because you twisted something or you hurt your shoulder and now we're battling so I have hypothermia. Let's split that quick and I'll get you some pain meds. But then let's, even if we're waiting for other people, sitting around waiting for other rescuers for an evacuation, like keep the patient moving. It's going to thwart a lot of those problems that are going to cause them to go downhill and an extended extrication if possible. This is completely not related to hypothermia. There's a There's a fascinating study I was reading the other day about metabolic rate. And there's actually some studies that have been done by Princeton that people that that have sedentary sit at their desk jobs are well served by just literally flat-footed calf raises Mm. sitting at your Mm. desk all day can significantly increase your metabolic rate and actually help you reduce body weight on whole by just lifting your legs and putting your heels down. Don't even have to take your toes off the ground. That little bit of effort can actually have a significant impact on your, your metabolic state. Well, the same applies for sitting around waiting for rescuers, right? If it's a moderately chilly day and you're waiting for rescuers to come, anything you can do to keep your patient kind of locomoting and burning calories is going to s- avoid problems in the future. And as we all know, those of us that have been doing the wilderness game for a while, as we all know, like somebody laying in a Stokes you're extricating over a 10 or 12 hour period will eventually be cold. Like it's a foregone conclusion. They will be cold. Yeah. So let's be commiserate professionals and avoid bringing some guy that broke his ankle to the hospital as a mildly hypothermic guy with a broken ankle. Exactly. <laughs> let's just bring him to the hospital for the thing we got called for, not inadvertently allow additional injuries to occur because we also let them get cold. So let's be conscious of that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So if you're in the cold environment and your patient is injured, which in and of itself, depending on the injury, can start affecting metabolic rate. And then we just let them sit there and be sedentary and slow themselves down and quit generating that heat. They're just going to keep getting colder. And that's not a good thing, right? No. And I'm just going to go on my one quick rant because this is a huge pet peeve of mine for as long as I've been doing this. If you're operating anywhere, anywhere, I don't care where it is, if it's the biggest, baddest, hottest desert in the world and it's August, or it's the tallest, coldest mountain out there, If you're not insulating your patient from the ground, as soon as you get there, 
you're wrong. Because if you're in that hot desert, the sand is hot and you could end up getting burns on your patient. And if it's cold, you need to start insulating them. I've had this debate with students and other professional EMS people that ah, it's August. It's okay if they lay there for a little bit longer. No, the ground is always cold, right? And again, except in those hot deserts that it's very hot and you can end up with burns, right? The ground is always cold. In the wilderness environment, which is what we're talking about, the ground is always cold. I don't care if it's August, it's July, whatever your favorite warm month is. If you're working in Australia and it's January, the ground is always cold. Insulate your patients. I have a closed cell foam uh, piece of mat on my pack. It's just a little bit longer than general adult torso length. And it's not for me, it's for my patients. If you get there and your patient is still sitting on the cold ground or laying on the cold ground and you don't immediately get them up off of that and begin to insulate them and remove that element of conduction, right, where that ground is going to start pulling the heat out of their body, you're wrong. Get your patients insulated as soon as you get there. What's that saying we use in high angle rescue? Like uh, gravity is always persistent and the rocks are always hard. Like, exactly, right? <laughs> right. If your patient's sitting on the ground and you don't fix it, you're wrong. Like, I feel yeah. like we're going to make a t-shirt of that, right? Fix well, the Well, we cold. should. Maybe we that's should. a good idea for a, for a winter sticker. <laughs> yeah, that's not a bad idea. Like, the ground is always cold and you should fix it, period. Like, yeah, like, yeah. there's, there's no insane. way around that, folks. It's, nope. yeah. I mean, I have treated patients in August where we're at 90 plus degree days. And the first thing I do when I get there is I pull out my mat. And if they're not already sitting on something, I put them up on top of it and just... And it's and do it for yourselves too. If you've ever just experimentally gone out in the woods and you're sitting there for a while and you've been kind of sitting on a rock, hanging out, and it's in the warm months, take out a small piece of pad and then sit on that thing for a while and then suddenly realize what a temperature difference there is, right? So carry a small sit pad for yourself, but always carry a small section of, of Closel or whatever you want to use for your patient, right? Please. That's in my opinion, it's this fundamental piece of medical kit as your drugs, your IVs, and your bleeding control equipment, right? I don't care how well you can manage the airway. If they keep getting hypothermic and you can't handle that one basic fundamental skill, you're wrong. You're wrong. Rant over. Yeah, that's why I don't use closed cell phone specifically just to get Sean going so that he has something to yell at me about later. But Which is true because Sean always has to carry his. because Sean always carries his. <laughs> I figure he's got it. I don't have to. I'll carry something else like a cardiac monitor as previously discussed. <laughs> Wait, yeah. I guess he wins because he's yeah. got the closed cell phone and I'm carrying a cardiac monitor. Yeah. And to be fair, I always carry the mattress. And uh, Mike's carried the monitor once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I'll make some changes to my kit for the 2023 season. Uh, yeah, you will. So one final note of thought here, and this is, this is applicable to everyone, so this is especially important for ALS providers. Two little nuggets here. One, we use this mantra a lot in ALS care, like don't, don't delay transport to perform interventions. And in the pre-hospital general urban setting, I don't know that I always agree with that. There isn't a whole lot more an emergency room is going to immediately do for somebody in a life-threatening emergency that we can't do there. So you should probably do that stuff like before you make your life harder and throw them in an ambulance. But when we're talking about 12 plus hours of time in the wilderness, hanging out and trying to do a bunch of cool guy shit or fix the problem as opposed to getting them to the most appropriate facility, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, isn't doing them any good. Take the basic interventions, Fix the thermal regulation that you can for now. If at all possible, trap as much of the heat they are still generating as you can because helping them make heat is way harder in the woods than it is in a hospital. <laughs> or, excuse me, making external heat and doing forced air heat is almost impossible. Like, you can go to we'll take wilderness classes and they're like, 
build a A-frame shelter with a, a aluminum foil space blanket and then start a fire and then watch your aluminum foil blanket melt and then start again. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the day, if you have to do it, you have to do it, right? But we as wilderness professionals are not here to make makeshift shelters and teach survival school. This is not e e This is This is not survival class. This is that dude's jacked up and needs a doctor place. And so let's get him to the doctor place. Yeah. I was just going to say, with any of the life-threatening illnesses, hypothermia, hyperthermia, severe cardiac problems, hanging out on scene, whether it's in the woods or not, doesn't do anybody any good, right? So yeah, once your crew has arrived to start either caring or transporting your patient in whatever apparatus or modality you have available to you, once they're there, that's it. Let's start moving. Like You should have been able to get what you need to get done. Those immediate, useful, life-saving measures, those should be done. Yeah, get that patient moving, right? uh, Nobody's ever benefited from an extra hour in the wilderness waiting to get taken to a hospital. Yep. And then there is, is, uh, I'll call it one last nugget from Mike's brain. I couldn't find a whole lot of numbers on this, but I did find multiple references to things that said, hey, put a little thought into, especially like more severely wilderness environments or more austere environments, not necessarily like Antarctica, but, you know, rural places in Montana, even where Sean and I operate, right? Bear huggers. Or if they're severely hypothermic, right? What's the, I, I can't think of the term now, where they put warm fluids, like they slosh warm fluids around in your abdomen. Yeah. Uh, lavage. Gastric lavage. Gastric lavage, yep. Your local community hospital can't do that stuff. Like bear huggers are not super cheap. They might have them, they might not. This is one of those pre-planned things and understand your environment. Because if they're moderately to severely hypothermic and you take them to those facilities, they're going to be like, get more blankets, Bob. Uh, start a campfire here in the ED. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, we got to get a flight crew to fly him. But bear huggers are, are, if you've never seen one, you should Google one. They're a really cool tool. If the facility that you're taking them to has them, they can be deployed pretty quickly. Yeah. But if you yeah. don't have them, you don't have them. And that's kind of the end of the story. So know your environment. It is important to do the, the calculation for, for things like cold injuries and say, well, it's 10 minutes to the local hospital. And it's 35 minutes to the level two facility. But the level two facility has all the tools, capability and skill set to actually turn this cold body around as opposed to, hey, get some blankets out of the warmer and then get some more out of the warmer. And if that's all you got, it's what you should do. But it's, it's important to make good care decisions on where we take people because turning hypothermia around is not, it's not as easy as like going to a warm room and everything's fine. If they're moderately to severely hypothermic, it's going to be work to get that turned around and get them healthy again. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot of, and again, we, we didn't talk about it here because it gets deep. For those of you who want to do some reading on hypothermia and hypothermia treatments, yeah, there's a lot of interesting papers and discussions out there about rewarming strategies in order to reduce stressors on particularly the heart and then some of the other organ systems. When your metabolism has been so slow and you warm it all up and you suddenly start cycling all that sludgy thick blood around what's good what's bad but again we're kind of getting off topic again but yeah we i may drop some links it can impact your kidneys and your liver function it can hurt your heart like it's bad for you so yeah that's probably another episode that we should be doing as well but it's kind of outside the scope of our concern because that's a hospital concern my big point here is don't just be like oh he's cold let me drop him off outside of the local ed this if they're severely hypothermic they need to get to a specialty center that can treat hypothermia and yeah, keep that, that in mind. True story. All right. Well, now that I've had a rant and you had a little rant on the phone cell, <laughs> like, I guess we're done ranting. Anything, any last thoughts, Sean? Anything else you want to mention? No, just uh, again, as usual, if anybody has questions or comments, 
I know my kids this up in our closer, but yeah, send them to us. If you got ideas for topics, you know, we're always game to, if you want more information on something we've already talked about, we'll, we can happily readdress previous podcast episodes and go into more detail. Which is yeah, trying I'm, to, I'm actually willing to throw us under the bus right now. You're welcome. Because I tend to be the busier guy of the two of us. So here it comes. Yeah, it so this will be mostly be on me. Uh, we're actually planning an entire year of episodes right now. We're, we're starting the planning process for the entire calendar year 2023. If you're listening to this at some time in the future, it is currently December of 2022 when we were recording this. But we're getting an entire strategy together. And if there are things you want to hear about, if you don't tell us, we don't know, right? Yeah. So send us a note. Let us know. Hit us on the socials. Send us an email if there are things or topic areas in general. I know, for example, I was talking with one guy the other day and he was like, oh, an episode on hypothermia that's coming up. That's great. I'm a caver and this comes up a lot. Like mm. if there are things you want to know, let us know. We like learning too. If we don't know the answers, we're going to go figure them out. Everybody wins. You get to hear our smoky radio voices. I don't know if that's a win. And we get to that's, learn more things that we may not have known. So it's terrible. Terrible. That's pretty bad. I feel like I should just hit the stop button now. And folks, right. that's it. Another one in the bags. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.